0: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallets, Smart Money Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Nick Majuli. This is the Mad Scientist, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast.
0: I once owned a Toyota Prius, a hybrid, back in the days when that was new and exciting. One of the best features of the Prius was you could track by the second your miles per gallon right there on your dashboard. If you eased up on the gas, you might make it to 47 mpg. If you rolled down that hill, gravity may lift you to 50 mpg. This previously unknown measure of efficiency that I had never been able to track before was all of a sudden everything. And I obsessed over it for months, probably over a year. Until I realized that maybe wasting a little gas was occasionally fun, that sometimes instead of coasting down that hill, I wanted to hit the accelerator and hold on tight. Ultimately, I realized that the goal was not to be super efficient or to attain the highest MPG. It was having enough gas to get me where I want to go. Today, we jump the metaphor and exchange gas for money and miles per gallon for safe withdrawal rate, And we tackle a big problem in the opinions of today's guests, the problem with the 4% rule. Brandon Ganch is a computer programmer turned financial expert, musician, blogger, and podcaster. His award-winning blog, Mad Scientist, along with his podcast, Financial Independence Podcast, has engaged millions of readers and listeners on their path to the living a life of financial freedom. Nick Majuli is the Chief Operating Officer and Data Scientist at Ritholtz Wealth Management, where he oversees operations across the firm and provides insights on business intelligence. He is also the author of, of DollarsandData.com, a blog focused on the intersection of data and personal finance. His best selling book is entitled Just Keep Buying Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Brandon and Nick recently collaborated on an article at madfiantist.com, the problem with the 4% rule and why you could retire even sooner. Brandon and Nick, welcome to Earn and Invest. Nick, let's start with a really big question. Is retirement the goal?
2: How do you define retirement? I mean, that's the question, right? I would throw a question back at you, right? So- Retirement can be a goal. I mean, it depends how you re- define retirement. I mean, for some people, that means you know, sitting on a beach somewhere. For others, it means you know having enough money to just do what you want every day. And so then maybe that does require work and income and things of that sort. But every person is different. And I think a point I emphasize is like figure out what you want, solve like kind of solve backwards, right? Figure out what you want before you start moving in that direction because I think that's the hard part. And you know it's like the it's a Age-old question. The Greeks used to say, "Know thyself," and that really is the thing. You need to figure out what you really want, and then solve from there. Solve backwards to get to, to get to that point.
0: Nick, let me push the corollary question: Is retirement synonymous with the absence of work?
2: Uh, it can be, but I don't think it's. No, I don't think that is always true. For some people, it can be. I mean, it depends. Also, how do you define work? If you're doing something you love, is that work? Right? We. It's more questions beget other questions. I'm not trying to be a, a stickler here, but I think it it really matters how you think about it. I think retirement is, un, you don't have to have forced work where you have to do things that you don't want to do. I think that's, you know, maybe maybe forced isn't the right word, but if you're doing a bunch of stuff you don't want to do, then I think that's probably not a good definition of retirement.
0: So Brandon, let's take what Nick said, this idea of working backwards And this idea of getting to a life where you're doing mostly things you want to do and not things you're forced to do, a lot of us look towards the safe withdrawal rate to help us get to that place. Although many people listening to this podcast right now probably know, can you at least give us a thumbnail sketch of what the safe withdrawal rate is and and why are we so obsessed with it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's the rate at which you can draw down from your portfolio with a high probability of never running out before you die. So that's obviously the goal of retirees, especially standard retirees, when, you know, you're 70 years old, you've done your career, you have this set lifestyle that you need to maintain and maybe, you know, have health issues and things and you can't work like you could when you're 40 or 20, and you need your portfolio to sustain yourself. So the four percent safe withdrawal rates is Based on William Bengen's study into past market market returns and risk, and it says that you know uh, with a 96% certainty you could withdraw 4% from your portfolio every year and adjust it upward for an inflation, and you will have a very high likelihood of never running out in a third during a 30-year retirement. So it's the basic math of retirement, and it's also the basic math of early retirement, and that's why you know, part of your discussion there with Nick about, you know, retirement and what is it. And it's the safe withdrawal rate is the main thing that was able to change that in my mind, because up until I learned about the safe withdrawal rates, I had always just thought that retirement was an age, you know, it's 65, it's 70, 72, whatever. It's an age. And it's when it's something you do when you get old. And it's something that's really annoying to say for now, because I'm 20. And I don't really care about my 70 year old self, but I know I have to do it. And I think that's the problem with retirement savings is that it's for this future that seems so far away. But in actuality, retirement is just having your money do all the work for you. And you can save in your 20s to have some of your money do some of your work for you. And maybe even by 30, you could have all your money doing all the work for you. And it's that withdrawal rate that is the the key to that. And That's why early retirement, as soon as I learned about the safe withdrawal rate, was so exciting because it was no longer, okay, I'm saving for this thing that may be good at 70, and instead it was, I'm saving for this thing that could potentially be incredible in five, 10 years.
0: Nick, help me out here. This idea that there's a problem with the 4% safe withdrawal rate, and part of the problem is maybe it's too strict and we should be withdrawing and spending more. Help me understand how that gels with most people's view of America, where we don't have a our we do have a spending problem, but it's not that we're not spending enough. It's that we're spending too much. Is this article suggesting and are what we are talking about today this idea that maybe Americans or at least a portion of them are spending too little?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think when you actually look at There was this great study that was done where they looked at retirees who actually had portfolios. You have to remember, you know, forty percent of Americans don't even have a portfolio. They literally just live off like Social Security and if maybe they might have a pension, but forty percent of Americans don't even have a portfolio. So of the 60% that do, they looked at those people and only one in seven are actually drawing down principal in a given year. And you're saying, Well, how is that possible? Well, most of them live off the investment income right? And then some of them, a small portion, actually live off less than the investment income and actually end up reinvesting more money, right? So their wealth continues to grow over time. And so I think once we start talking about safe withdrawal weights and all this stuff, we're getting to a very, very niche population, like who's actually drawing down principal. And I think the thing that I've started to realize is people don't think in terms of like stocks, they think in terms of flows, which means they're thinking in terms of payments. So if they're like, oh, my spending, like oh, my income from my investments this year is going to be 30 grand. I'm going to spend 30 grand. I'm not going to spend a penny more because I don't want this principal balance to go down. I think some of the reason for that, they hedge for you know, these edge case scenarios where you get super sick and you know, a lot of healthcare costs. Like, There's all these sort of things that people think about that are risks, but they're very unlikely. And so I think that's why people end up having more than they really need. And that's why like the book die with zero by Bill Perkins is such has become so popular because I think I do think there's a portion of the population that is significantly over saving. And so that's something that I like to think about. And just I like to put that into the conversation. Now, I'm not saying that, okay, don't ignore withdrawals. It doesn't matter. No, but I think a lot of these people who are in that bucket are probably so advanced and so far ahead of the game that they really have less to worry about than they think.
1: And that's exactly my audience at Mad Findus, And that's why this was written for the Mad Findest audience. The most of Americans, yes, have a problem with spending too much. And that's a huge problem that you need to solve way before you even get to the Mad Findest blog or any idea of early retirement, because, yeah, that's the majority of the population, I think. But my subset of the population, we're all very quite similar. Even your story in the intro about, You know, watching the miles per gallon gallon in the car, like I literally can't own a car that tells me real-time mile per gallon calculations because I will watch that and try to be the most efficient (laughs) driver I can be, and I risk running into the back of somebody in front of me. And I think a lot of people in the financial independence world are very similar as well. And we're so obsessed with efficiency and saving and investing, and we're so good at it that spending is the hard part. And as Nick mentioned, I was here that I only read that within the last year, but it completely changed my outlook on spending and what how I think about my own spending and my own planning, because there's a lot of arguments that he raised in there that I didn't think about in my 20s and 30s that I wish I had.
0: Nick, it begs a, a, an interesting question, and you're the data guy here. We actually are really good at data nowadays. We're really good at looking at safe withdrawal rates, calculating the numbers, and knowing what our risks are. And yet, were, we're really bad at actually following our own advice. How far does the data go versus our own emotions? Like, is it our emotions that are driving us, or are there people out there who are actually calculating their safe withdrawal rates and following them as opposed to looking at the numbers and then being either super conservative or Unfortunately, the other side, which is not the group that probably listens to this podcast, which is blowing it off and spending too much.
2: I would guess that about maybe 15 to 20% of the population can follow like a strict like, oh, here's the plan, here's the data, whatever. And even that population probably has time to time, like mice, I would consider myself in that population. But there are times where, you know, you do get a little emotional, or maybe I'm going to hedge a little bit, you know, I know, I said, I could withdraw this much. But what if this happens, so you start to hedge a little bit in your mind. But I agree that most people, you know, are run by emotion. And that's why I think those, you know, those ideas are very popular. And so, I'm just trying to present the other side of it. Like, I think data matters. I think it's useful. I think we can learn a lot from it. Of course, it's not everything. Emotions can can completely overrun that. But yeah, that, that's kind of my look at it.
0: Brandon, we are going to talk about the article specifically and get in the de- into the data in a moment. But before we do, talk to us about your own personal struggles with safe withdrawal rate because I think it's important to color these conversations with the reality of what it feels like.
1: Yeah. So first, I have to mention that I've not even started withdrawing from my portfolio. So ironically, a lot of the web apps that I wrote as a software developer in my own free time before I even discovered early retirement, those are now bringing in more money than we spend. So that's what made me really want to get serious about at least spending what the portfolio could generate. Because since we weren't even touching it, then like I Even though compound interest is very hard to picture and imagine, I at least (laughs) appreciate that I'm bad at understanding how fast that could grow. And it was like, okay, we're not even touching the portfolio. This is, I'm almost seven years into having left my job. I left in 2016, and we hadn't touched the portfolio yet, and more income still coming in. So it was that that made me think, okay, I, I really needed to think about spending because I wasn't even spending. 3.5% 3.5% of what the portfolio could generate, which again is very conservative. That was the most conservative that you know Michael Kitsis on my podcast said that you probably would need to be for a 40 year retirement. And I wasn't spending that and income was coming in. So I, I definitely want to put that out there because emotion is everything like you guys were talking about earlier. And I, I, I haven't had to feel that emotion of taking money out of this big thing that I've been focused for decades to to grow. So I I think that's very important to to point out.
2: If I could say one thing on that, like I think there's a lot to upside surprises that people don't talk about. And you brought up Michael Kitsies. He has this one data point which I love sharing. And what he basically says is he did it like a, a simulation where he said you do a you know 30 year retirement, you know, 60-40 portfolio using a 4% rule, all that stuff. You're more likely to have four x your balance after 30 years than you are to be under your starting balance, right? Which kind of gets at you're like, I'm not even touching the portfolio balance; it's just going up, right? So, I think it's something to know and keep in mind. Like there, there for a lot of people, there's more upside surprises than than they can imagine.
0: Yeah, in fact, I think Bail Bangin recently came out with the 4.8 percent number now versus. Traditionally, it was actually 4.1, and people started saying 4% rule because it was catchier. But, but there's obviously some leeway there. Brandon, let's start working on the numbers. While reading your article, the one thing that hit me, especially in the beginning, you say in the article that the safe withdrawal rate calculations are really based on traditional retirees and not early retirees. Why is that, Brandon?
1: Yeah, so that's just something that's bothered me for you know, the 10 plus years I've been doing mad scientist, actually, like I said before, the safe withdrawal rate changed everything for me. And, you know, Bill Bengen study was really important. But it assumed, you know, a 4% of your initial portfolio value, and then you adjust upwards from there for inflation every year. And there's, a lot of flexibility that re- early retirees have that I don't feel that you know you would feel comfortable enough relying on if you're 60 or 65 or 70. So the fact that most of my spending probably over half of my spending is discretionary because I've locked down my fixed costs before we had a kids, you know, eating out and traveling were my two big things that I love to do. So most of our budget went to those two things and the thought that if the market tanked next year, I wouldn't maybe just cut back on traveling a little bit or cook more at home is just crazy to me. And that's very different than someone who's, you know, maybe has $500 a month healthcare cost for a nurse to come in, or, you know, the mortgage is needing to be paid every month and things like that. So I think there's just a lot of flexibility. And in worst case scenario, I go back to work and I say that I've had this it was six year sabbatical where I've been a, uh, you know, an entrepreneur, and it went well for six years. And now I'm going back into the workforce. Like, if you're 75, you're probably not going to want to go back into the workforce. But here I am 41. And after six years of not having a job, I, I think I could easily pick up a job. And if not even in my own career of software development, you know, I could go down to the, to the local coffee shop, and you just just work enough to to not have to draw down on the portfolio on a really bad year. So it's that flexibility that I didn't think was accounted for in the 4% rule. So when I was chatting back and forth with Nick and he said, Hey, if you want to, if you, want, you r- want me to run some simulations for you or something, just let me know. And I was like, Well, this thing's been bothering me for a long time. And it would be really interesting to see what that r- withdrawal rate could be if we factored in some of that flexibility.
0: Nick, one of the things that hits me is, this idea of the SWR being too conservative. And one of the reasons possibly is inflation. And so we talk about a fixed budget versus discretionary budget. As you get older, your fixed budget is probably bigger and your discretionary budget is smaller. But when you're younger, a lot of that budget is discretionary. Talk about inflation and why for a younger person, the inflation adjustments may not make as much sense when you're talking about a safe withdrawal rate.
2: Yeah, so when we did the simulation, we we were looking at like, how do we want to do inflation? Do we want to raise inflation on the discretionary bucket? And do we want to raise inflation on the required spending? And so we said, especially for early retirees, like... Let's just assume all your fixed spending does have to move with inflation. Like, let's say I don't, I'm not assuming everyone's renting, but let's say you're renting, and you have to move that up. Obviously, that's not true if you have a mortgage and a fixed cost. But let's say with maintenance and all that, let's just assume that is like an inflationary thing. So we said, okay, all your fixed costs have to move with inflation, but maybe your discretionary don't. Maybe we just set an amount and you say, so for example, if we def- if we figure out that you know at most your discretionary would be in a good year. 100% discretionary would be, let's say, $30,000. That can be fixed. And you just, you know that amount. You say, I'm most in a good year, I can spend 30 grand. And so you have that 30 grand to kind of spend throughout the year as you choose. So you might say, Oh, I'm going to take a trip here. I'm going to do this. And then you're like, Oh, I'm running low on that discretionary bucket. So I have to make some decisions, right? I think over a 40 year time horizon, absolutely no change in the discretionary is going to be tough. But I think like I could see it working for at least 20 to 30 years doing that. But after, Like 40 years is a long time. Like, you imagine, okay, it's 1980, right? Like, imagine what you could buy in terms of like the travel costs and everything. Now, compare that to now. I think whatever amount you set in 1980 is not going to make it. But that's why, you know, we're looking at the numbers. I think everyone's going to read this article and they're going to still be like slightly more conservative than this. No one's going to be like, oh, I can go 5.5. I'm doing 5.5. No one does. Everyone says, okay, I I saw these numbers. I'm going to go 5.25 or 5.0, right? So people are going to still take this and jump back a little. And I think that's. of built into the model so that's the thing i would i would think about with inflation like i agree discretionary doesn't have to move with inflation as much and because we're giving you an exact number when you start the simulation, you know, your budget, you know, for the on the discretionary part, your fixed costs can move, which is fine, but you know, your discretionary costs at most in a good year, let's say it was 30,000 in a correction, we cut it to half, which would be 15,000. Right. And then in a bear market, you have no discretionary, like in a really bad market. That was the, that was the simulation. So you just got to do that with what you will. Right. And so zero is easy. Like you don't have anything, can't travel, can't go do all that stuff. But if you have that little extra room in a correction or in a, a normal market or a normal year, you got to just make it work with what you have.
0: Brandon, in a few moments, we're going to talk about the actual proposed rules that you've built into your new model. But before we do, you know, Nick was talking about 40 years. The original Bangin model was 30 years. We're talking, at least in our population, of people who might be stepping out of the workforce or at least not making as much income in their 30s or 40s. Talk to me about why that doesn't invalidate some of these safe withdrawal rate calculations. Why can we look forty or maybe even fifty years out and still be at least have some confidence in these kind of numbers?
1: Yeah. So my interview with Michael Kitsis is still the thing that I rely on most because yeah, he's one of the most respected retirement researchers in the field. It was a, it was a fantastic discussion with him, and he was talking about the fact that. The main cause of failure for retirement portfolio is usually the first 10 years. If you have a really bad first five, 10 years, then your portfolio really can't recover from that. And then that's why you end up missing out in 30 years. So it's the sequence of returns that matters. That's going to be the determinant whether you're going to last that first 30 years. Because to give a really clear example, say you have a million dollar portfolio and you spend $500,000 a year. So there's two scenarios. Say in year one, your portfolio doubles in year two, you know, it decreases by 50%. And then the flip side, year one, it decreases by 50%. And the next year it doubles. So, you know, it's the total return is exactly the same. So if you looked at that and you'd be like, okay, yeah, the total return in both of those scenarios is the same. But the problem is when you're withdrawing from that portfolio, if you're withdrawing 500,000 a year, so if that first scenario where it doubles and then you withdraw five hundred thousand dollars, that's fine because you're one million one to two million. You withdrew five hundred thousand and you're left with one point five million. But in that second scenario, if if the sequence of returns is reversed and it drops fifty percent and you take out that five hundred thousand dollars, you're left with zero. So when the next year when it doubles, you are unable to capture that gain. So that's why the sequence of returns matters. And the fact is that. That the sequence of how your first 10 years act and how you how your portfolio performs over that first 10 years is a very good indicator of how long, whether you're going to make it or not. And since it's those first 10 years that are so important, if you make it to 30, you are going to have a pretty high likelihood of making it to 40. And if you make it to 40, you're going to probably have a really good likelihood of making it to 50. So that's why, yes, you're going to adjust downwards on the safe withdrawal rate because you it does have to last till 40 years. But once you hit 40 years, like it's pretty much going to you're pretty much guaranteed maybe to last to 50, 60 plus because you would have you would have, you know, handled sequence of returns risk and anything that happens to your portfolio. It's already big enough to handle that in the markets.
0: I think you make the point in the article that when you were talking to Michael Kitsis, this idea that if you wanted to go from 30 to 40 or even 50 years, you might want to decrease your safe withdrawal rate by like 0.6% percent right so you're going from like a 4.1 to a 3.5 but on the other hand because we're not looking at this difference between discretionary and fixed spending our true safe withdrawal rate or bangan's suggestion is the safe withdrawal rate now is 4.8 so if you drop 0.6 from that you're really back to where we started with a roughly four percent safe withdrawal rate nick and after the break we're going to jump specifically into the rules For your proposed model. But before we do, I just want to kind of big picture it. So if I'm correct here, then the idea is that what we really want to do is parse out discretionary from fixed spending, because by doing that, it allows us to spend more, right, to have a higher safe withdrawal rate. Is that the kind of idea behind this article?
2: yeah you can spend more in well it's a conditional you can spend more in the good years right so if the market's doing well and everything you can spend more obviously in the down years you're not going to be spending in more and when i say down years we'll get into what that means you have to cut back on your discretionary so you could have that for multiple years there are periods where we've been in bear markets for multiple years so that could be a, a rough you know three to five years of you know not going and traveling like you used to but I mean that's that's what this sac if you want to withdraw, you know, instead of four percent, like in this in the example we use five point five percent total, you have to be able to move that discretionary to zero in certain years. So your total spending won't be anywhere near five point five in some years, but in other years it will be, right? So that's that's the kind of the sacrifice of this that's that's needed.
0: We are talking to Brandon Ganch. He is a computer programmer turned financial expert. And Nick Majuli, who's the chief operating officer and data scientist at Rithold's Wealth Management. And we are talking safe withdrawal rates. Are we spending enough? We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. We are talking to Nick Majuli. He is the author of Of OfDollarsAndData.com, as well as the best-selling author of Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth, and also Brandon Ganch. He is the writer behind MadFiantist.com, and we are talking safe withdrawal rates. Are we not spending enough? Brandon, in your article at MadFiantist.com, you propose a way of looking at the safe withdrawal rate, and you propose these three rules of flexibility. Tell us about these rules. What are they?
1: So it was just a way to try to figure out a way to get your discretionary spending to change with how the market's doing. And we didn't want to make it too complicated because, again, this is just a thought exercise. You know, people aren't going to follow this to the letter. This was just an idea that, okay, discretionary spending is important. And if it's a large portion of your portfolio, and you can be flexible with that discretionary spending, then you could potentially, you know, use this higher withdrawal rate, which would then would let you retire earlier. The three simple rules that we decided after a bunch of back and forth was that, okay, so you figure out your discretionary budget. And if the market is within 10% of, you know, the highs of the, the market, then you can take out that entire discretionary budget. If the market is in a correction, so 10 to 20% down, you would take half of your discretionary budget. And if the market's in a bear market, so 20% down plus, you would have no discretionary budget for that year. And the thought of that is that we we went back and forth because it was like well what maybe my portfolio is not down 20% but yeah the market is but maybe mine's maybe down only 10 and we sort of talked about whether it made sense to do it on a personal level or on a market level and we we decided the market level was a lot cleaner a lot easier and it was probably it probably made more sense because if if the overall market's down 30% then the economy itself is probably on a shaky foot on shaky footing and if you're going to tighten your belt, it's probably wise to tighten it when you know you're, the general population's employment options are maybe more limited, and or inflation's soaring and costs are going up, and whatever caused the market to go down thirty percent, maybe it makes more sense for you to to tighten your belt in that sense, in those situations. So, so that's what we decided on for the simulations was to, you know, have those three simple rules, but. You know the market generally is up. <laughs> That's why if you look at a long-term chart of the market, you'll see that it's very much up into the right. And yes, there's in, there's fluctuations in in that, but overwhelmingly it's it's positive. So in most years, you're gonna just you're gonna take out your entire discretionary budget, which again is going to be higher than it would be with the four percent rule, or you would have retired earlier and and withdrawn the same amount. It seemed like a very simple way to account for that flexibility. Yeah, so just to
2: let me put some numbers to this, I think it might make it a little bit easier using what Brandon just said. So I'm gonna make I'm gonna use round numbers here. These are not realistic or anything. I'm just gonna use round numbers to make this super easy. So let's say you know you you're gonna spend $100,000 a year, right? And that includes discretionary plus fixed, right? And let's also assume that 50% of that spending is discretionary. So 50% is fixed, 50% is discretionary, right? So in a good year, AKA the market is down less than 10%, right? So it's down maybe 5% off its highs, whatever. You'd spend the full 100,000, right? In the first year, right? After year one, you adjust the the fixed spending for inflation. So maybe it's like, you know, if it's 5% inflation, then you're looking at, you know, 50 to 500 or another 2,500 bucks, whatever. And then your other, the discretionary is still at 50,000. But let's say the market, let's say goes down, let's say it goes down, you know, to down 15%, Right that 50,000 bucket is now cut in half to 25,000. If the market by chance were to go down by, you know, 25% over 20, that 50,000 goes to zero, right? So, let's say year 1 you spend your 100,000, but it we go into a bear market, right? We're down 25%. Now in the next year, you only get to spend 52,500, which is just your fixed side plus the inflation adjustment, right? So that's just one simple way of walking through one year of this. And Brandon and I talked about this all like, how do we want to do it? We can evaluate it monthly and all this. I'm like, no, that's too hard. Like, the, you only need one data point, and that's every December 31st. You look at what how far the market is from its high, and that tells you what you do with your discretionary. And then you run that for the year, right? And that's it. So that $50,000, that's in a good year. In a, you know, okay year, you go to 25. And in a bad, a roughly bad year, you go to zero on that discretionary. And remember, your fix keeps moving. So your fix is going to keep going up by inflation every year. And that, I think, is a simple way of doing it. And it's a way that people can use. You don't have to look at it monthly. It's just too much tracking. I said, you look once a year and then you make a decision and you budget off of that. And that's how it would work.
1: And it's also important to point out that you are the one that decides your discretionary percentage because if you realize that, okay, yes, I could cut out all the international travel, but I'm going to want to go see my parents every year no matter what, and i'm going to want to go to the beach one year once a year with my family and i want to go and have coffee down in the my local town you know at least 3 times a week and that's you know that is definitely discretionary in the in the real sense of it but to you it's necessary so if yeah maybe if you if your true discretionary spending is 50% but actually you know you, you wouldn't enjoy your retirement if you had to skip out on that And you could set your discretionary budget to 40% and 60% is actually essential. And that does allow you to have some finer things in life. You don't have to just stay inside if there's a bear market. So I think that's important to point out too, because uh, yeah, it does sound pretty harsh having no discretionary spending in a bear market, but yeah, you get to decide what that, uh, that actually looks like.
2: Yeah. But what that would do, that would lower your overall rate. Like if let's say you had a 50% discretionary and you're like, oh, I'm going to pull out, you know, that 100,000, I just came up with that number. But let's say that's, you know, 5.5% withdrawal rate with this system. If you're like, you know what, actually, I'm going to do, you know, 30% discretionary you're going to have, you can't do 5.5. You're going to probably have to lower that number, which means you can't take out a hundred every year. Now maybe you can take out, I don't know. I'm just making this up maybe 80 or 85 now, but, but now the, you know, you get to have a little bit more, but you have to give up something. So there's, there's always this cost for this. Right?
1: And and that's, and that's what I liked about this method because as someone who left my job and started to like think more about how I'm spending it, I, I liked the idea of the variableness of this because it be e- if it'd be easy to get into a routine where you're just spending this money and not really thinking about it and you're not really enjoying it. And also, on the flip side, if you're like me and who's super frugal and finds it hard to finds it hard to spend, it's easy to just keep saving. So the idea of having this fixed bundle of discretionary money, and yeah, it it varies each year depending on what the market does. But knowing that that's my discretionary fun money, I feel like that would get someone like me, to spend it more than just lumping it all together and then being like, well, actually, I don't need that coffee, so I'll just save it and just keep saving for the rest of my life because that's what's easy and that's what I'm used to doing.
0: Nick, it seems like most of us kind of a priori accepted this idea of the 4% rule. Now, what you guys are saying is depending on how much of your budget is fixed versus discretionary, That can actually have a profound effect on what you start with as your safe withdrawal rate. So tell us some of the numbers. How profound effect will this have by using some of these proposed rules as opposed to starting with 4%? What kind of numbers could we possibly start with?
2: And I think uh, what we talked about in the article is like if you used a 4% rule, and let's say you followed our discretionary rules, you could go up to you know 5.5. And and the example we give, using a 4% rule across all 40-year periods from, you know, remember, this is where 100% is uh, required spending, no discretionary. 4% rule over all 40-year periods from 1926 to 2022, there's a 96.55% chance of success. Now, if you use our rules with the discretionary where it's 50%, you get a 98% chance of success, right? So basically the same chance of success over all 40-year periods, you can now withdraw more, but you have to have years where you cut back. So that's the trade-off. That's just one example. It's hard to talk about the numbers because what you should really do is we have a table in here, a heat map, which makes this really useful. And so, for example, in the table, it shows like if your discretionary expenses are zero, you have no discretionary, 4% rule basically works across the board, right? But as soon as you go to like, you know, where's the fifty percent line? It looks like it's at like so. Once you go to like six point two five percent withdrawal rate, that's where you know between six point two five and six point five, that's where you have a fifty percent chance of making it through forty years, right? With with zero discretionaries, right? So all fixed spending. If you're like, I'm gonna have a six point five percent withdrawal rate, there's a fifty percent chance you won't make it. You'll run out of money, right? However. With that six point, let's say two five percent withdrawal rate. If you have 70 percent discretionary, like where that's a huge amount of discretionary, that means you, your probability of survival is 100. So you can go up to 6.25% withdrawal rate, but you have to have 70% discretionary, right? And so I love this heat map here. You can look on the article and you can see what trade-offs do I want to make. If I'm willing to go to you know 40, 50, 60 discretionary, how much more can I get out of that? Right. So at 50 percent discretionary, you can go to about 5.25, 5.5 withdrawal rate at 70% discretionary you can go up to 6.25%. So I I really recommend looking at this heat map because it really allows you to quantify those trade-offs pretty quickly.
1: You know, we've been talking about it allowing you to spend more, but in the financial independence world, everyone's focused on when can I retire and that's where the higher withdrawal rate really lowers the time to FI. So for example, if you have $40,000 of spending that, that you need t- every year to to live uh, and part of that's discretionary but let's just say you spend $40,000 a year you know you have to have a $1 million portfolio to to be able to retire and quit your job because that's 4% of 1 million but if you want the same probability of success like nick said you can go up to 5.5% with this discretionary budget if you have 50% discretionary spending so that would require a seven hundred and twenty-seven thousand dollars portfolio. So instead of saving for a million-dollar portfolio, you only have to work until you spend until you save up a seven hundred twenty-seven thousand dollars portfolio. But again, during the down years, you're you're potentially only spending twenty thousand dollars a year or twenty thousand dollars inflation adjusted. So again, not, there's no free lunch. There's you can't have everything. Yeah. So you need to, you need to just figure out what trade offs are worth it for you, and if you want to retire, you know potentially a quarter of the time earlier than you would have otherwise, then you're going to have to make some sacrifices in in bear markets.
0: Brandon, let's talk about some of those other additional benefits. So the key benefit we're talking about is you can spend more. Another benefit you just mentioned is this idea that you might be able to retire earlier or hit kind of that fire number earlier. You've often talked about some of the disorientation that came to you because of early retirement, and you feel like this model actually may decrease that. Explain why.
1: Yeah. So for someone who's been obsessed with money since I was a kid, honestly, like my parents tell me stories about throwing quarters in the deep end of the pool and I would just spend all day like searching for more money and then call my grandparents when I got home and say like, did you find any more money? Like just obsessed with it. I don't know where it comes from. But anyway, for someone who's thought about money and has been driven by money my entire life. So from studying hard in high school to then, you know, studying computer science in college and working hard to get a good GPA and then getting a good job. Everything's money has driven everything. Starting side businesses, writing, writing these programs that are now earning money. Like everything has been about the money. And then to lose that as a source of motivation, just like that is very disorienting. And I was not expecting it. That's the biggest surprise I think of, of leaving my job was having enough and being comfortable with my level of spending and like really enjoying it and having money just be meaningless pretty much. Cause it was like, I think it was Mr. Money mustache way back in the day who just like talked about it sort of like water. Like you don't like you love tap water and you drink it and you need it and it's great, but you don't really think about it ever cause you have enough and it's always there and you have it's it, the this, supplies, this you know, as much as you'll ever need. And I didn't really get it at the time, but now I get it and it's very disorienting to have your, sole source of more you're not sole source of motivation but you're one of your biggest sources of motivation to to that to just disappear overnight and the benefit of this strategy is that you are still motivated by money in in a sense because if it's a bear market and you have the opportunity to go and do something fun that earns money maybe you won't be as lazy as i am these days and and you would actually (laughs) just like go do it and i think that's healthy i think I think having that as a source of motivation is healthy especially if eventually yeah maybe it's not going to be but if it if it slows your transition and it allows you to gradually wean yourself off of that drive towards this effectively pretty meaningless thing at the end of the day then I think I think that's a positive.
0: Nick I'm not nearly as smart as either of you and therefore I did not come up with these modifications that allow me to spend more money But I did come up with another modification, which is just to occasionally earn some money on the side. Does that effectively do some of the same thing?
2: I mean, yeah, you can either spend less or earn more. So like there's a lot of ways to do this. And, you know, it's so funny because we talk about all these rules and these things. And like the the fact is, like in a really dark period, people are going to cut back in a big way, probably even on the required spending, probably on like you know imagine the great depression you think people you know obviously we didn't have you know personal finance content like we do today a lot of the stuff wasn't really there but like do you think people were like oh you know i'm just going to go no people tried to find work wherever they could they cut back they you know food lines all these things that happened in the united states at least that were just so profound and different and i think humans are very adaptable and they will find ways to make it through right and and we we're talking about all this remember this is all within the niche niche population of those trying to retire early we don't even talk about the 40% of americans that literally live off the $1500 a month in social security that's roughly the average benefit per person so that's what the average you know retirees getting is $1500 a month about 18 grand a year and they're living off that somehow right and so you know it's it's not great but that's you know obviously there's medicare medicaid there's other things supporting them just besides that money but like you can get into like we're really getting into the weeds here for a very specific subset of the population when you zoom out it kind of gives you a little bit more um you know
1: context of what's really going on speaking of social security how many how many early retirees do you know that actually factor that into their calculations in a big way i don't know too many and again that's another source of potential upside that you're maybe not factoring into your calculations Yeah. And
2: one of the things people, everyone, like all my friends, like, oh, I'm going to assume I'm going to get zero. I'm like, okay, you actually look at the data, you know, the the fund's going to run out, but people are still paying in. And so even they've done some actuarial analysis and they think they'll be able to pay at least 70% of benefits, even with them running out of money. And so like maybe set, let's, let's even be a little, let's say it's 70 is too high and let's just say 50, 50%. So let's assume you're going to get, if it's fifteen hundred dollars a month, let's assume you're going to get that half of that seven fifty a month. Obviously, adjusted for inflation, right? Because inflation is going to move that. But you're going to get an extra eight hundred bucks a month, adjusted for inflation, in retirement. So that's a simple way of looking at it. Like today, I didn't even plan to have an extra eight hundred bucks, but what is eight hundred? That's a you know, that's a bunch of meals. That's a, a bunch of stuff can you can buy with eight hundred dollars a month.
0: Brandon, are there any downsides to the safe withdrawal modifications you guys are talking about?
1: Sure. Yeah. No, it obviously makes it a bit more complicated. You don't just set it and forget it. You got to actually be clued up to what's happening in the market, which could be ju- detrimental to your investment performance because, you know, they say dead people and people who forget they have the account are the ones that uh, perform the best because they're not in and out of stocks and selling when things get scary. So that that's a downside. And again, the, fut- the past is not going to guarantee what the future is going to look like but all we have is the past to rely on. So we can just base it off that. But I would just say, have confidence in yourself to that know that you could handle things that happen and you'll adjust. You're not just a robot that has to stick to any rules, the 4% rule or these modified adjusted rules. You are an intelligent person. And if you've retired early, you obviously are resourceful and you've worked hard and you think about these things. So you're not going to just wake up one day and be like broke and be like, how'd that happen? <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely downsides, but There's downsides to every withdrawal method and strategy, and you just have to have just confidence that you're going to be able to deal with anything that that pops up in the future.
0: Well, Nick and Brandon, I wanted to thank you for being on this show today. What I love about this conversation is it really helps us put rules of thumb into perspective, in this case, the safe withdrawal rate. I know lots of people actually hate rules of thumb, especially people who spend their life advising other people on how to deal with their finances. But I think rules of thumb are really helpful and they can be great anchors. But what I think you both show with this article is we can then take that anchor and modify it in ways such to actually be more efficient and to allow our money to do for us what we want it to do for us. I want to end the show the way in every show by asking you what's up next and where people can get in touch with you. Nick, let's start with you. Tell me about your book, Just Keep Buying, and where people can get it.
2: Yeah, so Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth uh, is on Amazon. It came out in April of 2022. So the market was down, I think, like 15 20% at the time. And markets, I think it's still down like 10% now. But you know, we're still buying. We're still <laughs> acquiring assets. So uh, yeah, you can find it on Amazon. And what's the best way to get in touch with you if people have questions? Yeah, the best way to get in touch with me is Twitter. My, my at is at dollarsanddata. And you'll find me on Twitter. I try to answer every single DM. If not, you can email me at nick@ofdollarsanddata.com. At that's nick@ofdollarsanddata.com. I try to respond to every single DM and message. Thank you.
0: And Brandon, there is a little mad scientist now in the mix.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Just had my first kid 10 months ago, so not doing much mad find stuff yeah this was a, a very rare article in a in a deep abyss of uh nothingness for a while but uh that's all right um yeah en- enjoying fatherhood and then uh yeah playing with a bunch of synthesizers so that was the whole one of the big reasons for wanting to to quit my job was to make music so just still having fun with that so yeah so that's that's the real thing i want you to follow so if you get a mad findist dot com slash album and follow me on Spotify because that's where I, I really want the the followers because the task for this summer is to put together a live set so I ultimately want to play that music live and so that's the, the the big task for the summer but yeah having a 10 month old uh, makes that a little bit more difficult so but yeah for Matt findist you can find me at madfindist.com and madfindist on Twitter and yeah Matt findist everywhere because it's a findist is a made-up word so I got Matt findist <laughs> on all the social platforms <laughs> so you can find me there.
0: Well, Brandon and Nick, thank you very much for not only putting out this article, but for joining me today on Earn and Invest.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate
2: this, Jordan. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the
0: Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. You're not spending enough. I know, it sounds counterintuitive, but if you are listening to this podcast right now, chances are... You are not spending enough. The reason why is people who listen to podcasts like these, people who listen to personal finance, people who have a portfolio of assets, stocks, bonds, alternatives, gold, whatever it is, people who plan enough to be in this place tend not to draw down enough from their portfolios. In fact, many people don't draw down at all from their portfolios. And I'm a perfect example. I mean, based on the numbers, I should be able to never work again. My wife should be able to never work again. And yet she still works. Now, granted, I don't think it's for money. I think she works because she likes it. And I still make money, hopefully doing things I really like to do. And I happen to make money on the side. But this allows us not to draw down on our portfolio. We have a safe withdrawal rate of 0% technically, there is no way we should be able to fail. But let's say we were withdrawing 4%. If we fouled the rules specifically and inflation adjusted, most likely we wouldn't run out of money. And there was a huge likelihood that we would have doubled, tripled, or quadrupled our money by spending that 4%. And currently... We don't spend that much every year anyway. If we took net investable assets and multiplied it by 4% and lived off that amount of money, we would have extra every year. So the truth is, I'm probably not spending enough, and you're probably not spending enough. The question is, what do we do about it? I mean, we can have these conversations about safe withdrawal rates ad nauseum. But likely, likely we are using our intellectual mind to deal with something that is really in the realm of our emotions. The idea of running out of money is so anxiety-provoking, so emotional, that you can do all the calculations you want, you can have all the spreadsheets you want, but that doesn't mean that it's going to change your behavior. And maybe it shouldn't. Maybe the anxiety of running out of money is so high that instead of trying to combat it, we do do these things that just make a little money to help us feel rest assured so that we don't have to stress about it. Well, what if we do that, right? If we withdraw less than 4% or if we still have some income coming in from the side and we make more than we spend and it compounds over time, when we get to those older ages, we're going to have a lot of money left. Well, here's where maybe my thinking differs. Maybe living a good life means donating that money. Maybe philanthropy is important. Maybe you do some of it while you're alive and then you leave some of it in your will. Maybe you fund your children's college. Maybe you fund your grandchildren's college. Maybe you use that extra money to do good. And in the lean years, you do less good. And in the rich years, you do more good. And God forbid you still can't figure it out and still want millions of dollars in the bank up until the very last breath. And you make sure you leave that money to a good cause. So I guess we should be spending more, and maybe that's just not in our hearts and minds. So instead, let's think about ways of making life livable, ways to make us feel comfortable with how much we are spending today. Let's enjoy this life. Let's do whatever we have to do and not be hard on ourselves if the math doesn't convince us. And we sometimes have to do things for our hearts and our emotions. But let's make sure that whatever is left over goes somewhere good that does some benefit, maybe to your heirs, maybe to society. Let's make sure all that extra money we create is having impact. Because isn't that the point of all this hard work? Isn't that the point of all this creation? That this money not only supports us, but does some good in the world? I think for me, that's probably the best framework as opposed to stressing over safe withdrawal rates. I think what I need to do is think about how to be the best steward of whatever money I make for the long term. How can I change the most lives? How can I impact the most people? And at the same time, keep my sanity. Awesome. I leave things running just to catch like any bit of our after show. First and foremost, I always ask you guys, is there anything we about the article or in general about this topic you think that we didn't talk about or that we missed or should, should mention?
2: I don't have anything. I think we really went into a lot of the weeds on both the, you know, philosophical side, which Brandon talked more about. Given you're in uh, early retirement, I'm not really doing that. Um, nothing wrong with that. It's not me. Um, <laughs> but like, I think the num- We also dug into the numbers and everything as well. So I thought that was very, very useful. Yeah, I would just link to the post, or even if you, I don't know. Yeah, link to that that heat map, heat map as well. That's yeah, really definitely. helpful. Yeah, you that's, could you could just embed
1: that too. But yeah, <laughs> link to it or heat, embed it. Yeah. That's fine. Um, yeah, no, I think I think the main point was that we just we reiterated that it's, you know, just to get you thinking because, yeah, there's no perfect withdrawal rate strategy. So um, you'll still get a bunch of a bunch of arguing in your comments of your podcast, <laughs> well, of too, I'm sure. But it doesn't. <laughs> but yeah, at least we, we got that across. And yeah, no, great questions and great setup. Um that's so funny about the the mpg stuff like oh my
0: god i, used to, obs- I just is... used to so obsess over it i so did I, like,
1: I, mean... I, would, I would almost wreck because i'd be like all right that car's gonna start going soon and i'm not gonna i don't want to use my gas so i'm just gonna coast i don't want to use my brake and then gas so i'm just gonna coast as long as i can and then it usually resulted in like slamming on brakes because he didn't go as far as, as soon as i wanted to. So it's like my wife was like you gotta turn that off follow the road just drive normally <laughs>
2: I wonder what percentage of the population is like hyper optimizers like this. Like I, I, I've been like this for a long time. I'm starting to move away from that a little bit. Like I've, yeah. I've gone down the rabbit hole in health, finance, everything. So, oh, you got to do this, and you have to intermittent fast for this. I Man, I was like, no, just get sleep. Like, don't drink too much. Like, <laughs> yeah. eat relatively healthy. Like that. That's ninety five percent of it, and like we're sitting here arguing over the five yeah. percent, which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, You know, no, that's- I have.
0: I have to hand it to Dave Ramsey um, who I'm not, not, I mean, Dave Ramsey's whatever he is, what he is. Um, but I love the term like financial peace, right? He used financial peace university. And I think for people like us who are major optimizers and calculators and always thinking about the numbers, like to me, the end goal actually is financial peace, which is that sense of letting go, right. Of being able to let go of the optimization and allowing your money to do what it's supposed to do with you for you without going crazy. And I found that for people who are just, you know, aggressive into their lives and into what they do, we all get on these kind of treadmills of going faster and faster of the calculations and the efficiency and all that. And it's just finding a place that's peaceful. And I, I certainly most of my post-financial independence life has been trying to, trying to step away from some of the craziness and find how to both do this stuff and yet be very peaceful about it.
1: Yeah, definitely. When you know, I chatted to Ramit Seti and he, um. He had said to me he's like, you know, when you when you reach a certain net worth, you just have to assume that you're going to waste a certain amount of money every year. And that's really helped me because yeah, like I could call and like yell at these customer service reps for 4 hours trying to get this money back and I still I still to as I say that as, as I say, it's about the principle. It's about the principle. It's like it's it's the principle
2: of getting screwed. It's like you no, know, I for example, Spectrum <laughs> raised my like I had like 4 months left before I moved and I wasn't going to pay for this anymore. And they raise my internet from like 70 to 85 a month. I'm like, do I really want to sit there and argue with them for 60 bucks? Right. Like, and I'm like, no, I hate them, but I'm like, whatever, just move on. Like 15 (laughs) bucks. Like, I'm going to sit there and argue with them for two hours for $15. Like, it's not worth it, you know?
1: So, so that was, yeah, that was, that was big for me. It's like, you just have to assume you're going to waste a certain amount of money. And, um, and yeah, that, that's, that's been helpful. But yeah, it's just, it's, uh, it's very old habits really die hard.